This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. This is All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from around the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. I'm Jordan Rich. I'm a Boston-based broadcaster and podcaster. And what a pleasure and honor it is to work alongside Diane, who is such a true professional and one terrific storyteller. So join us today as we meet up with another of Diane's very interesting relatives. This time, it's brother-in-law Earl, who takes us on a trip behind prison walls where he served as an educator for years in the California penal system. Diane? Hi, Earl. Hi, Diane. Welcome to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. And I'm very excited because we finally got it together that you had some time to come on this podcast. And I'm delighted that you're a guest because you're going to bring to the forefront a lot of things that people always wonder about. And you have a very special place um, between your career and your life experience. So I think this is going to be dynamite in a good way. So let's get right into it. Can you give us a history of your career in the California prison system, how you got there, and what your first impressions were? Excellent. Yes, and thanks again for inviting me today. I appreciate the opportunity. The California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, an excellent institution to work for. It was life-altering, and I worked for 10 years within that system at three different prisons. Can you tell us the names of the prisons and what your positions were? I'm in education, and I worked at the Correctional Training Facility, Salinas Valley State, and Chuckawalla Valley State prisons. I first worked as a teacher for two years and then for eight years as an education supervisor. Uh, My title was that of supervisor of correctional, uh, supervisor of academic instruction. So California has a numbering system of one to four for its incarcerated people. One's being the low end and four being a high end maximum security risk. Mm -hmm. So at Correctional Training Facility, it was everything from a one to a four with an emphasis on the lower end. Uh, Salinas Valley State Prison was a three, four prison. And Chuckawalla Valley State Prison was a... One, two, protective custody prison. Okay. Uh, Just to follow up on that, were these done in classroom settings or one-on-one tutoring? I've always wondered about that. So every state prison in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation has a school. And in that school, it's divided into two segments. One is vocational education and the other is academic instruction. And academic instruction does take place in a classroom environment. And historically, the teacher-student ratio has been about 27 to 1. Classes are held usually in a two and a half, three-hour time block, one group in the mornings and then another group in the afternoons so that the teacher has a 54 to 1 ratio on a daily basis. You're all by yourself in that room with that many incarcerated people. How does that work? Well, the first thing that you set up uh, logistically for the teacher is to set up an escape route so that the teacher always has the ability to leave the classroom in case something goes off. The teacher also has 
protective equipment in the form of an alarm that they can ring. That alarm system is a push button device that they wear on their prison belt. Um, in Arizona prisons, teachers actually carry mace, but they did not uh, carry mace in California. You also had a correctional officer, and they're not called prison guards, a correctional officer on each floor. So if you were a two-story two uh, schoolhouse, then you had a correctional officer on each floor. Here's a question. I'm sure, Diane, you're thinking the same thing. Did you ever have to pull the alarm? And if so, what, what <laughs> exactly. was the circumstance, if you recall? Um, within the Department of Corrections, if you had to press your alarm, it shows that you yourself had not, you had lost control. So the, the point being that prisoners, you don't demand respect from prisoners. You command respect through your actions. And in 10 years, I never pressed my alarm. So I never had a need where a prisoner thought that they needed to take action against me for anything that I was doing, either within a classroom or within a school or on the yard or in the cell blocks, because I've provided education cell front. When you have lockdowns, you have to take educational materials to cell fronts. You give instruction one-to-one in, in that situation in those cell blocks, um, even three tiers high. You go up or you provide supplies, um, as I'll talk about when we talk about legal issues within a prison in a little while. So cell front, one-to-one, -one, classroom, 27 to one. And, and also uh, in my instance, I had an entire school to be responsible for. What did you wear? Like what garb did you have to differentiate yourself from the, I mean, I'm sure all your coworkers knew you, but did you have something special you had to wear daily or? In California, the colors are blue for incarcerated and you can never wear blue jeans or you can never wear a blue shirt. You can never wear an orange shirt to prison either. And so you just, you adapted, you wore black, you wore gray, um, brown, but you never wore the same colors as prisoners. And that's because if something goes off and uh, you're in a housing unit or you get out of the yard, um, that way you're not shot by a correctional officer. You see me smiling, but it's like any job that you have the potential to be quote unquote shot, it's amazing to me. And I have the utmost respect for people that step into that role and go into those prisons and, and do this work. It's, it's just unbelievable to me. It's awesome. But Earl, by and large, do you think these people really want to learn? So that goes to the concept or idea of recidivism. So the use of the word recidivism, which I just said, goes to the idea that when a prisoner is or receives an education, they are less likely to return to prison. So that's where the idea of recidivism and having school inside of prisons originates from. We don't want them to return to prison. Uh, RAND studies uh, that have studied this longitudinally over a period of time have come back to show that inmates, prisoners, convicts, and I'll tell you the difference between them here in a little while. Sure that receive an educational credential of some type, be it a GED or a college degree of some kind, 98% of the time they do not return to prison. So it's a great incentive on the part of the department to not 
I mean, to allow education to go forward. And again, it could be either vocational and you get a certification within a certain area or academic. And once you get that credential, you're not coming back to prison 98 out of 100 times. It's worth every penny for the taxpayers to, to have that program in place. It's un- invaluable, I would think. On average, it costs about $48,000 a year per prisoner to the state of California. Do the students have to pony up any of their own money to obtain a GED or a college diploma? I'm glad you asked that question. As regards their adult basic education, which is K to 8, and their high school education, which we call pre-GED, those prisoners in those classes do not have to pay their own money for education. If you're going to try for a college diploma, then you or your family or someone that you know will have to pay the college directly to enroll you in their college program. That college program is what you would call a hard copy college program. So there's no interaction with the professor other than in writing. All of the proctoring of exams are done um, by people such as myself that are named in the uh, program. And all of the books that would come to you have to come through me. And so it's quite, quite difficult to get enrolled in college, yet we've had hundreds of men that have done so over a period of time. Earl, let me ask you about these individuals in terms of their learning skills. Uh, I've done a lot of work in other areas and other podcasts on the subject of learning disabilities, and uh, research seems to indicate that a great number of people behind bars suffer from learning disabilities, unchecked, dyslexia, etc. Is that something that you can attest to in California? Based on personal experience, I would tell you that the first indicator for education is most of these individuals that are incarcerated made bad decisions. And you never say a mistake. They made bad decisions. And those decisions were based upon either economic uncertainty that they faced for robberies or kidnappings um, to make money or whatever, rob a bank. But they are on the whole very intelligent individuals. They may have left school early. They may have worked early in life to support their family members. On, I would say that roughly nine out of every 10 that come into education want to be there and they want to help themselves now. The big criteria here is that 71% of all incarcerates at the time of their a crime are incapacitated due to either drunkenness or a drug uh, condition. And so that's the first thing that you have to eliminate is eliminate that addiction and get them off that chemical and then start the rehabilitation process. In regard to having seen men with either dyslexia or having a learning disability, I would say that's a real issue primarily with our ELL, English language learners, or English as a second language learners. And they have certain learning disabilities having to learn in a new language. So that would call for interpreters in the classrooms. And we really did not see a lot of learning disabilities. Most Most of these men are functional and capable. I would say that the majority of the immigrant population 
uh, were the ones that we had the most difficulty with as regards to either dyslexia or learning disabilities. You're preaching to the choir here because that's what I see in the court. These people commit these horrendous things when they're blitzed out of their sneakers. You know, they're on drugs or, they're, or they've been drinking heavily and they do something crazy. And it just makes their life go on a completely different trajectory. It's tragic. But Earl, can I ask you the next question that I'm dying to know? Can you give us a rundown, like a play-by-play? Assume we know nothing because we don't, because we haven't worked in prison. Like a typical day, like when you pull up your vehicle and you take the key out of the ignition and you walk into the prison, like what happens first over the threshold? What do you do? The prison has its own police force. And there are some days where people decide that, that, that work there that they're going to bring in contraband into the prison. So some of the, one of the first things I used to always look for when I pulled in was to see if they were searching people coming in to the prison. And they're very coy about it. And there are people, and I've had roughly 10 employees that have been arrested before work. And they would be arrested by the county sheriff and escorted out in a patrol car, cuffed up. And I used to be really smart about seeing whether or not that operation was employed before I even got out of my car because I was conditioned to looking for it as a supervisor. People that walk up to the gate and see that they're going to be searched um, even before they go through a metal detector or anything and turn around and walk to their car, they're intercepted in the parking lot by prison uh, internal police. uh, And then they'll search their cars and they'll look for them and get contraband off of them. That's automatic. Uh, jail time and possibly a conviction and go to prison themselves. And you don't realize that by not working there, that there a greater majority of the employees in a prison are the, what you would call custody employees. That would be correctional officers and then the whole hierarchy of lieutenants, captains, and uh, assistant wardens, associate wardens, and, and the warden. They constitute the majority of prison personnel. Then you have free staff. And that's what everybody that's not involved in custody employment in a prison are considered. And that's what we're called. And who do you think is more likely to bring in contraband into a prison? It's going to be custody because there's more of them numerically, statistically speaking. So prisoners will consistently, constantly, continually look to see who they can manipulate internally into doing things for them while they're inside. And that's what leads to crimes being committed um, by prisoners against other prisoners and, and, by, and by people that come inside and try to, to bring uh, contraband to uh, prisoners. That's what I look for continually as a supervisor. Yeah. You're listening to All Rise. At the Horse Thieves Tavern in Dedham, Massachusetts, just south of Boston, you're invited to stop by, enjoy delicious food and drink, and socialize. Now there's a concept. Horse Thieves Tavern is a modern take on a traditional New England tavern. Located in historic Dedham Square, a place where locals and travelers can mix in a warm and inviting atmosphere, serving terrific hearty and healthy regional food and drinks, with an awesome takeout menu and live entertainment. It's the Horse Thieves Tavern at 585 High Street, Dedham Square, Massachusetts. For more, visit horsethievestavern.com. Stop by anytime. The Horse Thieves Tavern. There's nothing like the aroma and taste of a freshly cut cigar. And having a friendly cigar store owner in your neighborhood, now that's a real treat. 
For those cigar aficionados in the Boston area, you may already know of Courthouse Cigars, but if you're just hearing about it for the first time, you will light up when you discover the variety of tobacco and cigars at Courthouse Cigars, 366 Washington Street in the heart of Dedham, Massachusetts. They carry a full line of aromatic cigars for any occasion to fit any budget, and it's the place to get that smoker on your list the perfect gift. Visit Courthouse Cigars at 366 Washington Street in Dedham, just south of Boston. For directions, hours, and more, call 781-326-2400. That's 781-326-2400. You're listening to All Rise. What's the leverage that a prisoner would have over a custody official? In other words, you want the custody official to smuggle something in. What do you have to offer as the prisoner? Well, if they've got um, money... Money is a great factor. They also uh, offer, they have sex with women Mm -hmm. on the outside that will perform tricks for the prisoners, for outside, uh, for personnel to come in. And that is one story that I do have to share about a prisoner who uh, was disrespected by a teacher. So the teacher then was at a bar, got picked up by a woman. She was a part of the gang that this incarcerated individual was in. And he ended up dead in Nevada, up on a mountain. And that's one of the worst instances of a prisoner that was manipulated because of one thing that he said to one prisoner one day. So it's wide, it's very, it, it can be very widespread, this whole manipulation issue within a prison. After he was let out of prison, he was murdered? The teacher in the prison said something to an inmate. And right. disrespected him. Yeah. The, the inmate set him up on the outside Yikes. with a woman that was in his game. <laughs> she manipulated the teacher. The teacher went with her. She drugged uh-huh. him. He then woke up. He only had his pants on and he was on halfway up a mountain. Of course, his lungs expanded and blew him out. And he was, in effect, murdered in that way. Are you a little extra careful handling issues in the classroom and speaking? uh, I know you're a pretty tough guy, but I mean, do you have to be a little bit careful of your P's and Q's? Well, you have to be very mindful of of what you say and you don't drop your eyes. You show respect at all times and you make sure that whatever a prisoner, inmate, convict, and I need to tell you the difference between them, uh, is with whom you're dealing with. So that that respect, uh, a pencil, like a little short golf pencil, uh, pieces of paper, um, whatever it is that they need to help them with whatever situation that they're in, that legally is theirs. You need to make sure that they get it and they get it in a timely manner. And that's what I used to take pride in was in the service that we provided to inmates. And then therefore, then they don't file complaints against you. Um, you don't have to go through the appeals process with them. And that that really is an issue that a lot of teachers didn't understand. And also I've had employees that I had at least five employees that quit after the first day. So why? Because they can't handle it. Uh, They think they can handle it. And then they come in and they realize that it's overwhelming and they, and they walk away from it. And then I have the cutest little old ladies that have been there for 20 years and never have a problem with anybody and, and graduate their guys and get them GEDs. And it's just, it's all about personality. Look, one thing you learn, you learn on a yard who, who runs what men classify, men classify by racial. So 
Blacks hang together. There's difference between blacks with Crips and Bloods, the Mexicans themselves with the Serenos and Nortenos. In my prison at Salinas Valley State Prison, I identified over 400 different gangs just within that one prison. Holy smokes. So you identified on every yard who was who. And whites, Nazi lowriders, Aryan Brotherhood, you knew who was who. And so I made it a point on every every time I would go to a new yard, I would find out, who, well, who, who's my man on this yard for the whites? I would go to him and I would say, okay, I'm new on the yard. This is what I do. This is my role. If you need something, please hit me, hit me up, write me a kite. That's what you call a communication is a kite. Let me know what you need. And then you and I can talk about it before you drop paper on me. Okay. And they would say, okay. That's cool. We got you. And that showed them also that you'd been inside for a minute and you yeah. knew what was going on. What it's- about the poor chump like me? Like if I committed a crime and ended up there, I don't identify with any group like that. Would I just be like <laughs> slaughtered that night? What okay. would happen? Because the other, other classification is female. So females um, do not identify by race. They identify by who their current girlfriend is. You did teach school prior in the public school sector before you went into the prison system, which was very helpful. But I think you just have that natural way. You, you really know how to, to treat people and deal with people. And it's a natural gift you have. So I think that helped you. Well, and also, um, I had a family tragedy in my uh, early 20s when my brother was murdered mm-hmm. in Missouri. And from that incident and that occurring, I... I learned a lot and I had to grow up a little bit faster maybe than I would have otherwise. It always conditioned me to thinking that life as we know it, it's changes on a daily basis. And I, and I always thought that maybe one of these men that I know is a murderer, maybe they feel differently about what they did. But regardless, it, it also toughened me up and I accepted reality because of it. Here's a question that uh, many people listening probably have. We often see in the movies the shiv and homemade weapons and smuggled in arms and so forth. What's the real story from your vantage point on that? It's, it's all very true. And the weapons production is an ongoing pursuit, I, I would say, every day. So there are certain food items that you cannot uh, share, um, like sugar. And you can take sugar water because sugar water will harden uh, an instrument to make it into uh, a device that can penetrate skin. And there are also uh, uh, weapons production is a major pastime in a prison because prisoners want to protect themselves at all times. And it's not from correctional officers. It's not from free staff. It's from other prisoners. And then the second part of that is where do you hide that weapon once it's been manufactured? Uh, I remember we had, and because I was a supervisor of the libraries, they would create false fronts in the libraries behind, uh, so you could hide them behind the books. They would hollow out the inside of a particular book so they could put the weapon inside of a book. And then one day uh, I had a captain that came on the yard and he goes, we're going to get under that counter. And I thought under the counter and he lifted up and there were 14 weapons under my oh, library man. counter. So it's like, that is an ongoing full-time avocation for correctional officers is 
let's find the weapons on this yard. Thank did you. Anyone, did anyone ever break out? No, and that's that's a big uh, fallacy. There hasn't been a uh, escape from a California prison in oh, 30, 40 years. Remember Alcatraz? Uh, they would jump out. <laughs> but if a prisoner, if a prisoner escapes, the warden is immediately fired within 24 hours. And then uh, the Amber Alert goes out and it's a big deal. So everything is geared towards safety and no escapes ever, never. So here's the follow-up question. You teased us with this, the difference between prisoner, convict, and inmate. I'm fascinated to know the answer. So it's a common misconception and people refer to Oh, somebody goes to prison, they're an inmate. But wait, they're also a prisoner. But what's a convict? So, and I learned this inside, of course, in that an inmate is the lowest ring on the ladder. And that inmate is new to prison. Usually he's been there less than six months. They ask for things that they don't have coming to them. They don't know their way around. They make mistakes because they're new. And generally, somebody has to teach them the ways of what's going on. The prisoner, then, is anywhere after that initiation period, six months to about 18 months to two years. They begin to settle in. They learn the rules of prison. They don't ask for um, things that they think they uh, should be getting. And they begin to learn the ways of the internal prison system, whereas a convict, they're down with it. They know what's going on. They know everybody in the house. They know all the employees. They know all the rules and regulations. And you can just tell by the way they carry themselves, the difference between the three inmates. And I, I used to ask a guy, I said, you're a prisoner. How long have you been in? He goes, oh, about a year. And I said, I knew you were a prisoner. And I look at the guy and I said, you're just an inmate. How long have you been in? He goes, oh, about three months. I said, I know, I can tell. <laughs> I look at a con. I said, how long have you been down? Oh, about 10 years. I said, I can tell. And you can just, you just learn to differentiate between the way that ways that the men carry themselves. You started to tell us about the day when you arrive at work, you told us, you know, when you pull in the parking lot, can now, now you exit your vehicle, then what happens? Okay. So you make it past the gate and the gate is everything in a prison, because if you know what adrenaline is, then your adrenaline rush starts when that gate clicks behind you and now you're inside. The first sense that is affected is the smell. So the smell of a prison just immediately takes you back. You become accustomed to it over time, but many people don't get accustomed to it and they struggle with it daily. So you come in, you present your ID, you go through the scanner. Uh, in some prisons, you have to take your belt off, you have to take your shoes off to go through the machines. And then you get all your gear and then you go to your yard and then on your yard, you get processed onto your yard. And so in California, they give you what are called chits and those chits are exchanged. So I have a chit with my name on it. I hand it to the correctional officer and he gives me back my keys. I give him a chit for my alarm. He gives me my alarm. Now, those are my property for the day. And if at any time I lose those keys, that yard goes down until those keys are located. How often and, does something like that happen? Yeah, it's usually like once a week. 
That must yeah. mess up all your curriculum. Oh, it, it, and it, and I have to write I have to write up a teacher if it happens, um, because uh, so many offenses and and we can terminate their employment. So that was a, that was the way to get into prison was to present your chits, get your equipment, and then you go to your location. And then I'm I'm there at the entrance when you come in as a supervisor, and I check you in. So now I've seen you, I've conversed with you, I know what time you've arrived, and now you go to your yard. And then at the end of the day, you reverse that process, you chit out, as it's called, and you come to um, where I'm at, and you check out with me for end of day. And now I've got full in and out, and I, and I can have full accountability on all my employees. Mm -hmm. And until I have that full accountability, uh, nobody goes home. Wow. I mean, I mean, no supervisor yeah. goes home. That's a very structured uh, system as it should be. You mentioned uh, the graduation of some of these men and women in some cases in some prisons, of course. What does that entail? Is there an actual ceremony? Is it done with some sense of decorum? Oh, very much so. And it's a, a great deal. And just to finish up from the point from a minute ago, and when that when that last employee is out and we're all outside of the gate, then we all look at each other and we say, well, we've done our eight, we've hit the gate, and thank God we're all standing up straight. <laughs> wow. So get, getting back to the graduation deal, is it is it – I'm going to use that, by the way, Diane. We're both going to use that now in our day-to-day -day operations. What That's is it like? Beautiful. What is it like when when these guys do graduate? What what happens? Well, I I always made a big to do about graduation. I had this one particular area that was uh, used for visiting, and we would turn that into a graduation. And we guys make decorations up. I invited personnel from Sacramento to come down and invite them as a keynote speaker. We would invite the valedictorian and salutatorian to make speech, make, make speeches. And then for each uh, graduate, be it for vocational certification programs in construction, carpentry, plumbing, HVAC, automotive, welding, masonry, electronics, or whatever, they got their certificate. And then if you got your GED, your general education diploma, or if you got a AA from a university or a BA degree um, from a university, then we would recognize you. And probably the greatest sense of job and purpose for me was would be at graduation when a hardened criminal would look over at you and say, I want to thank you, Mr. Williamson, because I didn't have faith in myself, but you had faith in me and I got faith in myself and now here I am and I want to thank you for that. And I took a lot of pride in that. I have to ask this question before I'm going to ask it, but I'm going to try to guess it after I ask it. And then I'm going to have you answer it. The question is, what does prison smell like? I think it would smell like body odor, fish from the cooking. Do they like when they cook, do they have enough ventilation? I mean, are these old buildings with bad ventilation? Is that why it smells? Is it dirty or is it just that there's so many people? I would assume this central air can do. I mean, what's it like? Is it old and decrepit or? Each prison has its own design and correctional training facility was one of the older prisons in California that I first started at. In fact, its hallway was uh, over a quarter mile long on its main wow. building. 
And at one point it had a, was in the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest mural in the world that was built. No prison is dirty. There is no prison that is dirty. It's meticulously maintained by the prisoners um, because really? you have, you ha it's, it's impeccable. It's really? impeccable clean, yes. And we, I had, you know, you have your own assigned uh, custodians in every unit and it's every it's continually clean 24 hours a day Interesting. In prison i guess the smell um would be not from cooking smells um far from it's just it's it's personal hygiene it's the smell there's so many people in one confined space that that's the smell that you get that radiates is it overcrowded well, in California at the time I started in 2006, there were 178,000 men. And the, it was designed at that time for about 50,000 less than that. Mm. And wow. there have been um, state laws passed and releases made where they've reduced that population now. But we had some men that were living in gymnasiums in triple cots. But that's no longer the situation. Earl, you mentioned legal issues. And, of course, there's rules and regulations above and beyond anything we can imagine. But can you talk a little bit about the legal issues that are involved in the, in the teaching process? Every prisoner has rights. And if those rights are violated, that prisoner has redress against any authority that is not allowing for him to practice his rights in a prison. So even if a prisoner is not appealing their case, you still can't harass them. You cannot do things to them. Uh, you have to make sure they get their meals. You have to make sure they have a cot. You have to make sure that their safety is maintained. And that's incumbent upon both free staff and custody to ensure that those rights are being met at all times. There are also prisoners that are in the appeals process and that must have access to the legal system. So those prisoners then are entitled to come to the law library, which in my instance was set up on every yard. And so we hired um, librarians to allow them to come in and access LexisNexis, uh, make sure they had supplies, pencils, pen, paper, envelopes, uh, so that they could look up their case, uh, not only uh, via computer, unattached, of course, or through law books, but you have to make sure that they have legal access to the courts. Now, there is another unit within a prison that's called an administrative segregation unit. Administrative segregation unit is for those prisoners that commit crimes while they're incarcerated in prison. And even they have to have legal access to the courts while they're in administrative segregation units. So those guys are gaffled at their feet and at their hands, and they're brought to me in a little room, and then they're put inside 36 or three-foot-wide holding cells, and then you have to uh, pull the computer up, roll it up to them, so they can access like LexisNexis, so they can do their court cases. And so I did that in particular um, for three years at one of the prisons I served at, and that was a half day every day, ensuring that every prisoner that has an appeal in process has access to the legal system. And I'll, 
I'll end on this one. The state of California budgets upwards from eight to $14 million per any one year for lawsuits from prisoners. It's a part of the budget. So they expect to lose in the court system. And I personally have been sued over 50 times by prisoners <laughs> for um, legal access to the courts. Well, the first one that that happened, I it really made me think about the entire situation. I'd already started a tracking system because I used to create tracking software in technology career that I used to have. And so we set up a tracking system. Every inmate comes in, has to sign in. So that was then copied and created a hard copy log. Every time they requested a supply, that was copied. That went into the hard copy supply log. And then I went back and as many records I could find for as long as I could find them. And I created a hard copy log, a hard copy filing system of every inmate request for admission to the library while they're at the library and anything they got while they were at the library. So it would it was to the point where one of the uh, attorneys in the attorney general's office would call me and, or email me and say, well, we're getting sued by prisoner XYZ. He says he couldn't get access to the library between these dates. And I'd say, well, give me 24 hours and I'll research it. And usually within one to two hours, I would be back on email and let them know, well, here, and then I would have PDF files that I'd scan and I could send via email attachment showing that this prisoner had attended the law library between these times and therefore their case would get thrown out. The attorney general in 2012 or 13, one day we're talking on the phone, one of the attorneys for that office and she goes, Earl, you've got the most organized system of any prison in the state of California for law library legal access. And I took a great deal of pride in that statement that she made that day because it's a huge issue that people outside of prison do not understand. And that is prisoners have rights. They have rights as humans and they have rights for the legal system that they're involved with. Well, it's interesting because I've had a few court cases when prisoners have sued the Commonwealth of Mass and successfully, might I add, and some of it was legit. I can remember one time somebody was complaining that he had um, a venereal disease and he did and he had a rash and they gave him the wrong cream and he got second degree burns on his private area and he recovered damages and, you know, because of the, you know, the mis diagnosis that he got. But, I, you know, we have a, one person in Superior Court in my court where I worked that was 24-7 dedicated to prisoner cases. There were tons of them, tons of them. I mean, it was a full-time job for this person just to handle them. But um, I know that we're going to run out of time. So there's just a couple things I wanted to wrap up with. You know how in the movies, like when they're going to execute someone, they give them a meal and a cigarette. Is that true or is that Hollywood? Like, have you seen anyone like executed? Like, can, like how does that work? Do people get, I'm in liberal Massachusetts. It doesn't happen here, but do they have that in California? I didn't work at a prison that practiced executions. It's such an exhausting round of appeals that they haven't done it for a long time. And yes, it is true that you do get a last meal. And, is it any good? And <laughs> like, give me more beef stew. Like, what is it? 
pretty is much whatever you order that they're going to prov- try to provide to you. Diane, don't That's you know it, that? Don't you know you can get the greatest meal of your life since it's your last one? Like, like, to, like, can they call Ruth's Chris and give you a really good steak? I mean, I, I seriously, I want to know. Or is it like from the canteen? I don't get it. Where does it come from? And can you have a cigarette at the end? That's beyond me. That's not. <laughs> so that's you've never. <laughs> custody. So you've never worked there when someone got executed. I didn't work at a prison that practiced executions. OK, that's what I needed to know. And the last thing, Earl, I know it's touchy, but. You know, behind every prisoner is a story and, and it's, it's heartbreaking. And, and like they, people don't see when they're committing crimes, like look at what was the left in the wake of your brother being murdered. It was devastating for your family, like devastating. But you and I have never really talked about it. You've been married to my sister for a long time and you've never really talked about it, but I've heard snippets over the years. And I remember you saying that nobody was ever they never found out who did it or they did and they were never prosecuted. Can you speak to that? Like the horror of, I mean, God. I can speak about it. It was almost 40 years ago when it happened. The circumstances were not great, of course. And my brother was involved in illegal activities. And I say it kind of all caught up with him and he paid for it with his life. I can say that the conditioning from that, as I alluded to earlier, uh, have helped steal me within my personality and also from my practice of Taekwondo for so long to help me mentally. It's how you carry yourself. It's how you communicate with other people. It's whether or not you know how to command respect through your actions rather than to try to demand respect through your voice. And that's how you survive when you're a prisoner. And so you take from your life's experiences and you grow from that. And I would say that anyone that is like me, uh, someone that has worked in prison or is considering working in prison, that it's a different world. And you may think you're cut out for it, but you won't know until you try. And in my situation, I had someone that was a man of faith, a deacon in my church that looked at me and thought that he saw that I might be able to instill through my spirit um, a sense of well-being within others. And I followed that path and I followed my faith and I took it to heart that I might be able to help others. And I did. And I was I had over 500 GED graduates, over 200 college graduates during my 10 years, and I took a lot of pride in that. I also never had a personal complaint filed against me by another prisoner or by an employee, and I also took a lot of pride in that. One fun question of the podcast. The reason I'm asking it is the courthouses I've worked in over the years, stray cats have come in and we've adopted them. And they were treated like royalty by the staff and the lawyers. They never went into the courtrooms, but they had the run of the rest of the place. They'd have their own bed and they got treated great. So I have to ask, are there prison cats? Are there any other animals that come in and out of the prison? Have any of the people that live in the prison, have they adopted any animals? Can they take care of them? I would think it would be good for their psyche. I understand why you would ask that question. And... I think back immediately to like the Birdman of Alcatraz, but there are no animals that are allowed per se on prison grounds and a variety of issues related to that, of course. 
I have seen prisoners that have had a little pet kind of rat that they found. And then I have seen prisoners that have fed birds on the outside, but they're not allowed to, and they're not allowed within the facility. Well, that's great. Is there any last parting words that you want to say, or is that kind of say it all? Well, there's a couple other little prison sayings that we have. When you walk up and you're, you come up behind somebody, you always say, behind you, and you say it in that voice. You never want to come up on someone unexpectedly in prison. And the other is, leave every door locked. I would leave you with that. Thanks for having me on today. Appreciate it. Oh, it was great, Earl. Thanks so much. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.